Well, I want to start out this morning by reading to you a story that I saved quite a long time ago. It's about a girl and her favorite doll. It says her name was Pandy. She had lost one of her arms, a good deal of her hair, and had the stuffing knocked out of her. She was my sister Barb's favorite doll. She was not a particularly attractive doll. In fact, she was kind of a mess. She was not a valuable doll. In fact, I don't think you could give her away. But for reasons no one could ever quite fathom, my sister Barb loved that little doll. In fact, she loved her too much for Pandy's own good. So when Barb went to bed at night, Pandy was next to her in bed. When Barb ate at the table, Pandy ate next to her. When Barb took a bath, whenever she could get away with it, Pandy took a bath with her as well. Other dolls came and went, but Pandy was family. And if you love Barb, you loved her rag doll. It was a package deal. One of the most storied moments in our family's history was the time that we took a vacation. We had traveled from Rockford, Illinois to Canada, and then we drove back home only to realize as we were nearing the Illinois-Wisconsin border that Pandy had not come back with us. Pandy had remained back at the hotel in Canada. No other option was thinkable. My father turned the car around and we drove all the way back into Canada. He didn't even consider mailing or FedExing or anything like that. We just drove back to Canada because we were a devoted family. Not a bright family in particular, but devoted. <laughs> we rushed into the hotel and checked with the people at Lost and Found only to learn that Pandy wasn't there. So we ran back up to the room where we had stayed and Pandy wasn't there either. So the maid took my dad and sister down to the laundry room where they found Pandy, wrapped up in sheets, about to be washed to death. The measure of my sister's love for her doll was that she would travel all the way to a distant and unknown country to save her. Well, the years passed and my sister Barb grew up, grew up and she outgrew Pandy. She traded her in for a boyfriend named Randy, who oddly enough was even less attractive than the doll. <laughs> Pandy had never been worth very much, but by this time she was so disfigured that the only logical thing to do was to trash her. But this is something my mother could not do. She took Pandy and she wrapped her in tissue and placed her in a box and stored her very carefully in the attic. Do you know why? Because my sister Barb loved that little doll with the kind of love that made Pandy precious to anybody who loved Barb. If you loved Barb, you loved her rag doll. It was a package deal. As years passed, my sister got married and eventually had a little daughter of her own named Courtney. And when she grew to the age where a doll would be appropriate, Barb wanted to give Pandy to her daughter, but when she took her out of the box, Pandy was by now more rag than doll. So my sister took Pandy to a doll hospital. It's a special place where they restore worn dolls, and Pandy went through a kind of reconstructive surgery. And after over 30 years, Pandy is now as beautiful on the outside. Bless you. How'd you get that high-pitched thing in there? That was... It was really cool. And after, after only 30 years, Pandy is now as beautiful on the outside as she always has been in the eyes of the one who loved her. Barb not only loved Pandy because Pandy was beautiful, she loved her with the kind of love, excuse me, Barb did not love Pandy because Pandy was beautiful. She loved her with the kind of love that made Pandy beautiful. The reason I read that story to you is because it tells us of a very special kind of love. A lo and love is going to be our topic today as we continue in our New Year's series that I've titled The Essentials. 
In this series, we are looking at four essential habits that need to continually be built and developed in the life of those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm titling today's message, Creating Value Through Love. You see, there are really only two kinds of love in the world. The first is a kind of love that seeks value in what is loved. It's a kind of love that is drawn to someone or something because it's expensive or because it's attractive or it lends status to the one associated with. But there's another kind of love that creates value, and it's, it's a kind of love that produces beauty within the person or object that is being loved. Such is the kind of love that Barb had for her doll, Pandy, the kind of love that created value in a rag doll, and such is the kind of love that God has for you and I. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 7 through 12. If you don't have a Bible and you're on the main floor, there's a Bible in the pew pocket in front of you. Don't have the Bibles in the balcony, but we will have it up on the screen, and you can follow along with us. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If you're not there yet, say, oh my. Okay, I'll give you a minute. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. In this scripture, John begins with the word beloved, meaning not so much to those who I love as those who are loved by God, God's beloved, God's ragdolls, if you will. It says, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. In other words, he's saying that God is its very source. If you want to know what the nature of true love is, then you must begin by considering what the love of God actually means. He goes on in verses 7 and 8, and he says, everyone who loves is born of God, and knows God. He says, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. When you study John's writings, you will find that he presents three great God is statements. He says that God is spirit. He says that God is light. But now the supreme statement that he's making is that God is love. You see, people matter to God. All people. There are absolutely no exceptions to that rule. Everyone counts, no matter how ragged they are, because God loves them. And it's very important to God that we as a congregation, as, a bod as the body of Christ, understand the kind of love that he offers us today. Because we live in a world that has sadly confused, is sadly confused about the nature of love. 
Last week, I worked at bringing you a high-definition understanding of this, uh, the, the idea and notion of repentance, one of the four critical habits that should be developed in the life of a Christ follower. And my, my hope is that today, to bring you a high-definition understanding of the kind of love that God has for us. You know, since we could never guess the truth about God's love ourselves, the Bible uses a special word to tell us or to describe how God communicates it to us. In in verse 9, John says, the love of God was manifested toward us. Another translation says, God's love was revealed to us. Now, this is a kind of a signal word that indicates something that we could not have come up with in our own cleverness. We would not have guessed this necessarily about God. This is a revelation from God. Verse 9 in its entirety says, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. I said earlier that there is a kind of love that pursues others because of their value, because of what they have to offer. And sadly, it is exactly that kind of love that that we waste our time trying to earn. We are continually trying to convince people that we are important enough or that we are successful enough or that we are righteous enough to merit loving. And every one of us plays that game. Shortly after I arrived here in Red Bluff almost seven years ago, I was invited by our district superintendent to attend a meeting in Sacramento with about 12 other pastors. These were pastors from some very successful churches in our district, and he wanted us to get together to brainstorm and share ideas. To this day, I'm not certain why he invited me, a new guy into the district, and not one of the larger churches, but but he invited me. And you have to understand that there are predictable things that go on whenever pastors get together. Whenever you're talking with a group of pastors, inevitably one looks at the other one and says, so tell me about your church. And you have to understand that that is pastor code talk for how many people attend your church. And to take it even further, it really means how important are you? It is. It's just the way it is. And I'm just being honest with you. So sure enough, I'm clustered with these group of guys, and one pastor asked another, so tell me about your church. And, and as, he, as he continued to talk, the guy finally says, well, we're running about 800 at my church. And sure enough, over time, the, the question moves on to the next guy. How's your church doing? And after a lot of preliminary comments, the guy finally gets around to answering the question they really wanted to know. He says, we're running about 1,000 at my church. Now, I knew what was coming next. I understand the game, and I know how we keep score in my world, and I knew I was going to be next. So at that time, we were running about 275 to 300 people here at this church on average Sunday. However, that first Easter, we had 650, and uh, the week before Christmas, we had over 600 people. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe I should just round it up a bit. Tell them that we were running about 400. I mean, 400 sounds more impressive than 275 to 300, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit bigger. But then it dawned on me, 
do I really think that that would impress these guys? Would they actually walk away thinking any more highly of me? Why would I consider sacrificing my integrity for the sake of status gain by adding some additional numbers to what our, our weekly attendance was? And I decided that I wasn't going to do that. And sure enough, the question comes, and the guy asked me, so how's your church doing, Pastor David? And I told him all of the many things that God was doing here in our church, how he was blessing us in many different ways, among many different stories and things. But then came the moment where they wanted that big question answered. How many people attend your church? And I paused for a moment, and I was fighting with that inner conflict about what I should say. And then I came right out and said it. I said, we run 1,200 people at my church. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's okay, Sheena. Don't shake your motherly head at me and tell me I'm a bad boy. I figured if I was going to stretch my integrity, I might as well make it worth my while, huh? It was just a joke. I told you that story, which is a true story, but I told the true number to make a point. We all play that game. We do. You're laughing at this, I'm laughing at this, but you know precisely the game that I'm talking about. It's called, let me impress you. It's about validation. It's about validate me and value me, value me, and we all have different ways of keeping score. Some people keep score with their money. Some people keep score with their grade point average. Some people with the size of their house Others with all the many different toys that they have to play with. Some people keep score with their power and their influence. Some people with their charm. Some people with their good looks. And some even with their super spiritual status. We all have different ways of keeping score in this life. But the truth is we all play the game. And that's why John lets us know it doesn't have to be this way. Instead, he says, God is love, and this is how we know what real love is. This is how God revealed to us the kind of love that we could never in a million years have guessed. This is a special kind of love that characterizes our Heavenly Father. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And it's not surprising at all that we should love God. I mean, God is everything that we could ever want. He is beauty, and he is goodness, and he is lovely, and he is lovable, and he possesses in the palm of his hand every perfect gift that any human being could ever desire. Why and how could we not love a God like that? You see, there is a kind of love that seeks value. But God loved us anyway. And this love had to be manifested toward us. God loved us not because he needed us, not because he could get something in return from us, or not because we were any kind of utilitarian value to him at all. He loved us with another kind of love. It is an out-of-proportion-to-its-object kind of love. He loved us Because it is his base nature to love. Because God is love. If you put a fish in the water, it's got to swim. That's how it expresses its base nature. It doesn't have to think about it. doesn't have to plan it. doesn't have to, to plot it. It just swims. 
You put a bird in the air, and the bird's going to fly. That's how it expresses its base nature. Doesn't have to plan it. Doesn't have to plot it. It's just what he does. You put God in creation with mankind. You put God in a universe with human beings, and God loves because it is his nature to love. And that's how he expresses who he is to you and I. Well, John continues in verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And that's a big word. Another translation says God loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Now you begin to see the full extent of the love of God. He sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for your and my sin. Why did he do this? Because God is fully aware of your secret and my secret, ladies and gentlemen. The cat is out of the bag. God knows that we are all just a bunch of ragdolls. In fact, there's a verse in the Old Testament in Isaiah 64, 6, that says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You see, the human race became so ragged, it became so defiled by guilt and by sin, that the only logical option was to discard the human race, to just trash it, to just start all over again. But this is something that God could not do. And so God proposed reconstructive surgery. God created a place where he could change filthy rags, and he could remove guilt and sin and create objects of his great love into something that was lovely. There really is such a place, and it's called the cross of Calvary. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the the atonement for our sin, to be the covering and erasing of our sin. Atonement is an Old Testament word used in the days when priests would kill an animal and whose blood was reminded of the cost of our moral impurities. Atonement is an Old Testament word that has to do with the removal of moral barriers that stand in the way of our reconciliation with God. But now the Bible says that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. The truth is we could not survive that kind of reconstructive surgery. So Jesus himself went under the knife for us. John says in the previous chapter in 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Again, this has to do with the kind of love that's revealed or manifested to us that we couldn't guess on our own. And understand, the fate of your life, the fate of my life, the eternal destiny of our souls is determined by how we respond to his love. You see, until we not only grasp his love, but learn to live in his love, we will have a real hard time with this walk called Christianity. Until you begin to understand that God is crazy about you, and no, he's not mad at you, no matter who's told you that, God is not mad at you. Until you can learn to live in his grace and in his mercy and treat others with that same grace and mercy, which is driven by love, by the way, you will never fully walk in the abundant life that he's promised. 
God's all-consuming, unconditional love is there to create value in you regarding yourself. Until you realize the valuable treasure that he sees you as being and that you truly are, you will never fully walk confident in your faith. Why? Because it is this love that is at the core, the very core of our faith. I want to tell you a story about another pandy. I was on a flight bound to Detroit to go to my sister's funeral. And two women got on the plane and sat in the same aisle that I did. And one of them went to sleep, but the other one wanted to talk. She was heading to Detroit as well. Her hair was a little too blonde. She had a little too much makeup. Her voice was a little too loud. And it was obvious that she had had the stuffing knocked out of her many, many times in her life. She asked me what I did for a living, and I told her that I was a minister, in which she replied she would like to try God sometime, but life is just pretty crazy for her, and she can find no time to do so. But she began to open up, and she began to share her story with me, which happens often on planes for me. I'm not sure why. Um, She said she was in a relationship with a man who was an alcoholic, and times he physically abused her. Even in all of her pain, she gives this man chance after chance after chance to make things right. I asked her where they met, and surprisingly enough, they met in a bar. So as she left for Detroit, she told her live-in boyfriend that when she returned, he will either have changed or she expected him to move out of her apartment. I tried my very best to bring some biblical truth to her regarding love regarding relationships, what that's all about. And then she explained to me that she had been in a series of bad relationships throughout her entire life. One right after another, she said that she had a knack for attracting losers. And as we continued to talk, I I realized that the only love that this woman had ever known was the kind of love that seeks value. The only kind of love that she ever experienced was the kind of love that demanded something from her in return. She really believes that if she just looks good enough, that she will find true love. So when she said life was so crazy that she didn't have time to to seek God, I wondered as she was leaving the plane that day, how many bad relationships will it take? How many more times will she have to have the stuffing knocked out of her? Will she ever understand that that hole that she's been trying to fill her entire life is just, and the way she's done it, is just doomed for failure? Will she ever understand that this search for love can only be satisfied by God? A God who created her in his image and who longs for nothing more than to love her deeply. My guess is that there's a number of people here today whose primary need and whose heart's cry is to be cradled in the arms of God. For a lack of a better way of saying it, you just want to receive love from God. There's probably a fair amount of people in this room who need that. And maybe you don't know how to receive it. We talk a lot about how God loves people. And it may be well that you are here today and you don't need to be convinced about God's love. You believe in God. You've heard this message before. God is love, but you just don't know how to experience his love. And I'm here to tell you today that experiencing his love is in fact a kind of a skill 
that you can acquire. It can be done. And I'm in the continual process of, con- of learning it every day myself. You see, over the last seven years, I have learned more about God's love than the entire rest of my entire whole life. And it mostly has to do with me listening. It has to do with receiving every gift, every good thing that enters into my life as an expression of God's love for me. It's about hearing God's voice through every gift and every good thing because the Bible says God himself is the maker of every good and perfect gift. And if God is omnipresent, meaning in all places, and if God is love, and I know him to be both of those things, then there is not an inch of space, there is not a moment in time, ladies and gentlemen, when God is not declaring his love for you. I remember when Brooke was just a little girl, when I'd come home at the end of the day, she'd run to the door, daddy's home, jump into my arms, and man, I love those moments, my heart would swell. And I've come to understand that that's a reflection of God's love for me. It's a moment when, when God is trying to say, look at what you're experiencing right now and understand that that's just a fraction of my love for you. We all know, and maybe you experience today, there are times during worship, moments of beauty when you have a kind of a longing and you wish it would never end. At that moment, you are longing what you're longing to experience is a gift from God. And that longing that you're experiencing is a gift from God. And he is saying to you, I love you. In the autumn and in the fall, when we're driving down the streets and the trees are turning from green to, to burgundy and orange, something deep inside of you responds to that. Because you are experiencing the wonderful beauty of his creation, earth. Understand, that is not just some random act of a mechanical universe. It is a carefully planned gift coming from a doting father who's saying through it, I love you. Sometimes it takes time and effort for us to listen. But there is a moment in your life when God, there is not a moment in your life when God is not saying to you, I love you. It's constant. The question is, will you give him the chance? Will you receive that love? Will you listen? Will you soften your heart? Because this is what will really transform your life like nothing else. Let's look at verse 11. John speaking here to people who know something about the love of God when he says an interesting thing. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, Now, if you pause right there and you think for a moment, there's a clear statement that you would logically expect to follow that. Beloved, since God so loved us, we ought to love him back. That's what you would think. But that's not what he says. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We also ought to love one another. And that's really the heart of my message this morning. Yes, we must understand and we must learn to bask in God's love, but we must in turn become a more loving people. One of the essentials that should continually be be developed in our Christian life is to take that love that we have received and to express it to others. The primary evidence of us loving God is found in loving the people who mean so much to God. Let me repeat that again. The primary evidence of us loving God 
is found in loving the people who mean so much to God, God's ragdolls. If you look at this text this morning, you will see over and over the commands to love. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. You go down to verse 20, it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Verse 21, he who loves God must love his brother also. I want you to look around this room for just a second. Right now, literally, look around this room and tell me what you see. You can keep it to yourself. What you see are ragdolls. You see a ragdoll up here too. Some are more ragged than others, but you see people who are precious in the sight of God. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, living on the ragged edge and unloving, Christ died for us. Therefore, you dare not trash anybody, not even yourself. God says to us today, to love me is to love my ragdolls. It's a package deal. He says they are my family. So if you love me, love my ragdolls because we're inseparable. In fact, if you want to love me, you must begin by loving me through loving my ragdolls. And you are to love them with the same kind of love that I have loved you with. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a love that creates value. Where value is not easily seen. Because you live in a world today that trashes people. Oh my goodness. It's ruthless. I would never want to be famous in a million years. I wouldn't mind the fortune, but not the fame. You live in a world where people are told every day that you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not rich enough, you're not sexy enough, you're the wrong color, you live in the wrong neighborhood, you're the wrong age. God says to us, to love me is to love my ragdolls. It's a package deal. John puts it more strongly than that. Go back to verse 8. If you'll spend some time reflecting on this scripture this week, if you're anything like me, you're going to find it a very sobering experience. Verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God. That's a sobering thought. Because we've all fallen short in this area of love. But the truth is, love can't help but grow if you are in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a certainty. If somebody knows God... One of the metaphors that Jesus uses for knowing him is abiding in him. It means drawing life from him. It means primarily receiving his love. The main thing that nurtures the spiritual life of any human being is receiving this love from our Heavenly Father. It's like being a vine that is attached to the branch 
that receives love from God. The primary benchmark for anybody who is, particip- who is a participating member in the body of Christ, the hallmark of it all, scripturally, is love. Love cannot help but to flow out of a relationship like that. And as you can see by these scriptures, it is a very serious matter. You see, I believe that we have misunderstood what spiritual maturity is all about in the church. I believe when you ask people, how is your spiritual life going, the first set of questions and things that they think of are a series of religious exercises. Have I had my quiet time today? Have I spent any time in the Word? Have I been attending church? Have I been faithful in sharing my faith? Have I been regular at that? And certainly those things are important if you are ever going to mature as a follower in Christ. But what happens is depending on how, you, how all of those things go, people will either see their spiritual life moving upward or they'll see it going in decline. But if you were, asked, if you were to ask the apostle John, how is your spiritual life going today? He would immediately look deep inside and, and he would have a measured response with this. How did I do at loving today? Apostle Paul would do the same thing. This is why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put, away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall, know, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now the three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul says that I can be involved in all kinds of religious exercises. I can speak in the tongues of men and of angels. I can have faith that can move mountains. I can be generous and give everything I have away to the poor. I can become a martyr and let myself be burned at the stake for the cause of Christ. I can do all of these wonderful religious things, but if I don't have love, he says, I am nothing. It's an interesting thing to me that whenever a well-known minister has a moral failure, we always know what it is, and typically the church becomes very critical of the pastor who fell. 
But what I find even more interesting is I don't know that I've ever heard somebody say, you know, pastor so-and-so is not a very loving person. There's a prominent minister on that you, you all know. And every time I watch a video of this guy, he seems angry. He seems unloving. And he's very condemning against any denomination other than what he preaches about. And, and, and yet, this guy has, a, has this huge church of people who follow him, and it doesn't seem to matter to them. What I mean is pastors, not just pastors, but Christians in general can go year after year after year after year and never address or never grow in this area of love. And it doesn't seem like we're phased by that. It's acceptable. And I don't get that. And the reason is because we viewed this call to love as optional. You know, we pick and choose the scriptures. Oh, that one, yeah, that's good. Put that one in my pocket. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yep, baby, that's my, that's my promise. Oh, love my neighbor. I don't like that guy. Jesus, you must have been off that day when you, you gave us that little bit of a, of a scripture. The scriptures make it very clear that this is a mandatory part of your and my life. John says, give up the game. Give up the game of finding people who will increase your status or who have some kind of beauty that can rub off on you. Receive your love from God and look for people in the world that get trashed, the elderly, the disenfranchised, the unholy, or the, excuse me, the unlovely, the homeless. Do what God has done for you through your words, through your touch, through your actions. Just love them. In verse 12, John says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. In the book of Mark, Jesus was asked by some religious leaders, what is the most important of all the commandments? They wanted to know from Jesus what was the most important thing that God has ever said to us. And in Mark 12, 29 through 31, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Here, Jesus clearly articulates to us his heart regarding the receiving of God's love and how we are then to pour that same love out into the lives of others, the ragdolls who he loves so much. Jesus said, you want to boil down the whole law? Here it is. Love God, love people. That's it. And this is an essential part of the Christian life, loving others. In fact, next to loving God, Jesus says loving people made in God's image is the second most important thing that you and I can do. And its importance is clearly shown in the book of John chapter 13, 34, when Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus tells us this is the kind of love 
that will prove to this hard-hearted world in which we live that God is real in our lives. It will show that a relationship with Jesus does make a difference. And he isn't just talking about loving those who are pleasant to be around or those who love you in return or who admire you or who care about you. He is talking about everybody. He is talking about God's ragdolls. And you know what? When I say ragdolls, that means every one of us because we are either an unrestored ragdoll or we are a ragdoll who is restored and being transformed. 